do you do when you see a bee? Do you scream and do you run inside, or do you stay calm and give it a wide berth? Or do you watch in fascination as it flies from plant to plant collecting pollen? Do you wonder where that bee has been, where it lives, and where it's going? On today's Hyperlink Radio, my guest and I are going to make the case for bees. Hyperlink is hyperlink. Hyperlink is Connection. Welcome to Season 2 of Hyperlink Radio. I'm your host for today, Mindy Peters, the Senior Web Producer at Winning Edits. Hyperlink Radio is our biannual podcast series exploring how we connect with one another, with our technology, and with the world around us. And bees, my friend, are a critical part of the world around us. Hyperlink Radio is produced by Winning Edits. Find us online at winningedits.com and get the latest episodes of Hyperlink Radio by subscribing with your favorite podcast app. Go to hyperlinkradio.io to learn more. That's hyperlinkradio.io. So today's episode is a continuation, an extension of an article that I wrote for Hyperlink Magazine called Beyond Beekeeping. I love bees. I am fascinated by bees, and I aspire to be a hobby beekeeper someday. Bees do not scare me. I am the watch in fascination as it flies from plant to plant. But here's the thing. I know that most people aren't as bee crazy as I am. Maybe you're one of the people who does run at the sight of bees, and that is totally okay. But if you eat food, and I sure hope that you do, you need bees and you need other insect pollinators. And my article, Beyond Beekeeping, which we will link to in the show notes, shares what you can do without resorting to becoming a beekeeper to help the bees in your neighborhood. In fact, my guest for today, James Wolfen, who is a graduate student with the University of Minnesota Bee Lab, is going to make the argument for why you shouldn't become a beekeeper. But that doesn't mean that you're clear of your obligation to bees. And James and I discuss what it is that you can do to help the bees in your neighborhood. So before we jump into that interview, let me tell you why it is that we owe bees a debt of gratitude. Three quarters of our food crops require insect pollination. Almonds, avocados, coffee, apples, strawberries, grapes, celery, carrots, broccoli, tomato, cucumbers, even cotton, even the clothes you wear require bees. The value to the U.S. economy exceeds $9 billion a year. But bees have been in decline, and you can read more about that problem in the article that is linked in the show notes. James and I discuss what it is that you can do, what you can do in your backyard. If you don't have a backyard, but you've got a patio where you can put out some potted plants, or even just in your community, what it is you can do to help foster bees. I'd also encourage you to watch the TED Talk that he and I discuss. It's linked in the show notes, and if you go to TED.com and search for the name Marla, it will be your first result. And so now here is my chat with James about bees. 
Okay, so my name is James Wolfen, and I'm a graduate student with Dr. Marla Spivak in the Honey Bee Lab, and I'm co-advised by Eric Watkins from Turfgrass Science. The project I'm doing we call the Beelon Project, where we're taking um, what's normally a a turf grass area that's managed for aesthetics, so people just like their pretty green grass, but we're right. saying, how can we make this habitat for pollinators or forage for pollinators? Because a regular yard that's just grass isn't very hospitable for bees. Yeah, a regular turf lawn is kind of like a food desert for bees. So the way we manage lawns, we mow them before they can flower, and even if they do flower, they're not providing nutritious forage for our pollinators because they just have those like little tiny grassy little well of course it's grassy it's grass those little <laughs> tiny flowers it's not like like a big bloom correct correct there's no um inflorescence that's really giving an abundance of pollen or nectar to the pollinators and so with your research what are you looking to achieve like what what is the goal of the research so the goal is to kind of find this middle ground between what a homeowner's ideal grass lawn looks like aesthetically and what an ecologist would want for a pollinator in terms of forage. So we want you to be able to keep some of that more traditional turf grass, but we want it to be a mix of turf grass and small growing flowers. If you had your way, what would lawns look like? Like if we didn't have to worry about, you know, beautiful green grass, um, what would your ideal lawn look like? Uh, that's kind of a, an interesting question because my ideal lawn wouldn't really even be classified as a lawn anymore. So um, my boss, my advisor, Marla, she's kind of done away with the idea of a home lawn as a whole. And she just has a variety of native plants and different flowering species outside in her front yard. And if, you know, my city ordinances would let me get away with it, that would probably be my ideal setting. Would you go for the... Uh, so I was a horticulture major in college, and I was really smitten with, like, um, basically, like, sort of prairies full of of wildflowers where you just sort of let a yard go and you end up with, like, waist-high, maybe even taller, of just just tall sort of reedy plants with lots of flowers. Is that an ideal habitat for bees? So an ideal habitat for bees, I wouldn't necessarily say it's the size or the height of the plant that matters. What's really more important is the uh, the diversity of plants. And it's not just a, a diversity in a snapshot. It's a diversity over time. So as you go throughout the foraging season from in Minnesota, probably April, <laughs> <laughs> April through... Uh, even, sometimes even the end of November, right. you want to make sure that you have a decent variety of flowering plants throughout the entirety of that season. So that the, so that there's food source at any given time. It might not be the same flowers all season long, but that there will be flowers there. Um, so tell me about what it is that you're learning with your research um, in terms of sort of striking that balance between the suburban ideal grass versus, you know, sort of a beautiful yard that's just kind of all gone to native plants and that sort of thing. What what in What is in the middle and what are you finding both that people like and mm -hmm. are willing to sort of accept as well as is working to serve those bees? You really summed up the questions that we're asking perfectly there, because we've actually broken this project up into two separate components. So sort of the social sciences side, where we're seeing what people like, as well as the more ecological side, where it's what works for the pollinators. 
So I could start with that social sciences yeah. side to thinking what um, community goers and homeowners like. Yeah. So one of the students who's on this project with me, her name is Hannah Raymer. She did some surveys of just local Minneapolis park goers, seeing how they felt about these belongs and the idea of using taxpayer money, actually, to incorporate these belongs into their lo- local parks. And what she found was super exciting for us. She found that over 90% of park goers would be okay and be supportive of using taxpayer money to incorporate these belongs into um, parks, whether it's for aesthetics or to support pollinators. So it's really great to see the overwhelming support that we have for this project within our community. And do you think a big part of that is education, just teaching people what this will do, like what the benefits, number one, the benefits of having bees around are and like, don't be afraid um, of when, you know, when you see bees, but then also, so, so what they can do for us, but then how we get them there. Yes, definitely. So before, you know, administering the survey, there's been these really strong pushes to highlight the importance of pollinators within urban landscapes, yeah. their role in agriculture. And Hannah even designed her survey to see what, I guess, empowering our community goers with knowledge does. So she gave them the survey bef- before providing with them oh, some, nice. with some information as to what these belongs do. Yeah. And once you know, the, the people taking these surveys realized all the benefits that these uh, belongs could provide. We, they, she saw even higher levels of acceptance for these belongs. Excellent. Let's talk about the, the, um, the research side of it in terms yeah. of what you're finding, like what changes to a standard sort of, you know, backyard or whatever, what changes sort of yield the most impact? Okay, yeah. So um, this is something that we almost found out by accident. Oh, good. I love it. Yeah, yeah. With, uh, with research, there's a little bit of an art, a little bit of a science. So um, I'm the second student who's been working on this project. It's technically phase two of the Belon project. Okay. And before I took the reins, it was Ian Lane who was on this project. And he wanted to determine what a, um, just a common lawn weed does for bees. So Dutch white clover, which is that little white flower that probably everyone's seen in their lawn, we use that as the baseline, and we wanted to see what additional flowers would do in terms of the diversity of bees, so the different species and abundances of bees that we see in lawns. And what we found was that from just Dutch white clover, we saw over 40 bee species using this as a source of forage. And when you consider that there are only a bit over 400 species of bees within the state of Minnesota and even fewer within, you know, Minneapolis city limits within an urban area. It's just an astonishing level of diversity that we see from just one flower and one flower that's often thought of as a weed. Yeah, yeah. So I'm thinking about that. And it's a flower that, um, you know, I've always seen in my yard. I've, I've, as a kid, I always thought it was really cute. Um, (laughs) but it was a thing that like adults always wanted to get rid of. Right. Mm -hmm. So what other flowers, what, what, or what other weeds have you found that actually have some benefit and might be worth keeping in the yard? So one in particular that's, if, if I'm sort of limiting myself to flowers that are normally thought of as weeds, sure. would be dandelion. Yeah. And that's a little bit of a tougher one to work <laughs> with because even though it doesn't bother me, boy, there's some people It drives who really, some people nuts. Oh, yeah. For some reason, that seed head, it just drives people crazy. But if we're looking at it, you know, we're shifting to the bee's perspective... Yeah. It's one of the first flowers to pop up early in the season. And is there like 
most of the season, right? Exactly, yeah. These bees are just first stretching their wings and their dandelion for them. And throughout the season, it's kind of like a, a fallback flower. Okay. If nothing else, there's dandelion for a little, a little bit of nectar, a little bit of pollen until some more... Interesting nutritious forage pops up. Interesting. So it's sort of, it's a good, it's a good backup. Um, so you said if you were limiting yourself to weeds, if you weren't limiting yourself to weeds, like what other, what, what other plants spring to mind? So the first one that we think is kind of the, uh, the gold metal flower, I guess, in addition to white clover, because I could go on a whole separate rant <laughs> interview about just how wonderful white clover okay. is to bees. But there's no. this little native flower, native to Minnesota, that is, okay. called Prunella vulgaris, self-heal. And it provides really just everything that we hope for for these Vlon flowers. So it's super pretty, which, you know, even the, even the pickiest scientist will admit is a perk. But it also <laughs> provides some really great nectar for bees. And... In this world where homeowners especially are looking for immediate results, another great thing about that flower is it'll bloom in the first year after seeding. Oh, nice. So, yeah, exactly. You know, we don't normally think about how long it takes a flower to come to bloom because we're normally just observing what we see around us. Yeah. When we're starting from scratch, when we're just seeding it into the yard, many flowers will take two or three years to first come to bloom. And when you want to provide sort of a service or a product for a homeowner, you want them to be able to see the immediate results. That's really interesting. Are there any other... I'm coming from the perspective of somebody who just has a house, has a backyard. Mm-hmm. Um, they they want to make sure that they are minimizing the detrimental impact to bees and maybe doing a little bit of something to, to help help the natural sort of ecology of the bees around them. Are there any other really great plants you would suggest or are there any is there a need for like a water source because i know in minnesota we're always told like don't have standing water because mosquitoes breed in it mm-hmm. um are there any other things like that that uh sort of the regular backyard homeowner can do to help make a hospitable you know environment um from a bee's perspective they're getting most of what they need from those flowers. Okay. So it's really the the um the nectar and the pollen. Okay. But some additional things that a honeybee will use is um the resin from trees. Oh. So what they use the resin for and this is strictly with honeybees is okay. they bring it back to their hive and create a hive product what's called propolis. Okay. And some research that we're doing in the lab. So this is in my research but some projects that Marla's done, some other graduate students here are still working for, is that these, um, the, this propolis provides a community, excuse me, a colony level defense from things like diseases, bacterias. I think she mentioned that in her TED talk, yes? Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah, sure she did. Okay, yeah, uh, and we will have the link to that in the show notes for this episode. Oh, great, great. Um, uh, so tree resin, is that coming off of, uh, so I'm thinking of like um, conifers, how they get really, you know, some of them are sticky. That's mm-hmm. that's what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. So it's just, um, uh, it's, it's hard for me to even describe yeah, the exact okay. product that it is. But yeah, it's a sort of um, liquidy product that they collect from the trees and they provision it. And the the end product provides that hive level defense that allows them to. Um, to not worry so much about fighting off diseases okay. and gives them more energy and resources to use for things like um, cleaning their hive, foraging, 
all the other activities that a honeybee Who does. knew that it's such a beautiful, complex world that mm-hmm. you just, at face value, it, it, it just looks like an insect, but it is this like beautiful, complex society that, that has all of these defenses and all of these sort of mechanisms in place. I think that they're really intriguing. (laughs) Can you tell us more about, so the building we're in here at the University of Minnesota, we're in the B-Lab and the B-Lab is more than just a building. It is sort of, um, it's a resource. It's uh, The B-Lab has a lot of really great community outreach um, built into that program. Can you tell us more about the sort of the B-Lab in general? Yeah, so the B-Lab, it's it, you know, from my end, I'm using it almost primarily as a, you know, research mm-hmm. hub. But even outside of that, you're right, it does provide a sort of landmark for community goers where they can look at it and they can see the work that's being done to improve, you know, their community and also raise awareness for their pollinators. So everything about this building from the inside and even the outside is meant to benefit our pollinators. Ooh, tell me so, about that. Yeah, so what I find most exciting is really how the um, the plantings outside the building were organized to promote our pollinators. So all surrounding this building, we sort of have that alternative landscapes look you were talking about before, yeah. where we do right in front have a lawny area, a bee lawn area, but surrounding we have just a variety of different native plants or bee-friendly plants, and even some habitat for bees to use. So here I'm sort of separating habitat from forage. Okay. And uh, habitat is just nesting area. Okay. So um, bees, they need a lot of like... So now I'm talking about native bees. Yes. They need either some sort of cavity to nest in or some pithy stem that they can overwinter in. So we try to provide a mix of both really high-quality bee forage and um, high-quality bee nesting areas just outside of this building. It's really, it's really beautiful, and we're just down the street um, from one of my favorite gardens on campus, the, mm-hmm. the research garden sort of display garden there. I just, I love that garden on campus. Um, the rest of, so as part of the outreach that the Bee Lab does, you, um, I know that there are classes that homeowners mm-hmm. can take to learn about beekeeping, which then allows you to qualify for, in the city of Minneapolis, you need and St. Paul, you need um, certified education before you're mm-hmm. allowed to keep bees in your yard. But once you take that education, it's pretty simple to get a backyard beekeeping license mm-hmm. for your home. Um, do you, maybe the question is, how do you feel about sort of that urban beekeeping movement of, you know, somebody just in the middle of, you know, a residential block having, having their own um, hives to care for bees? So this is kind of a, this is an interesting question. I might not be giving the answer you're expecting. That's okay. So when people look at urban beekeeping, one of the, it's it's almost synonymous with hobbyist beekeeping. Sure. Yeah. And to me, I look at it as more than a hobby. It's also a responsibility. Sure. So if you're a backyard beekeeper, it's it shouldn't be something that you're doing just for fun. Because if you don't do it well, it can harm both the native bees and the honeybees around you. Okay. So, can you tell me more about that, about the harm that it can do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So these honeybees, while they do you know, an incredible job of pollinating our wildflowers, 
And they even re- really help us see some benefits in urban gardening and urban farming. If you don't monitor for pests, if you don't take mm. good care of your bees, what can happen is these bees will start to, um, an urban beekeeper's bees sure. will start to see some disease in their hive. And if they don't take care of it and they are not monitoring the levels of disease, they can then spread that disease to the the bees of beekeepers who are doing a good job, who are responsible beekeepers that treat their bees. So what I always say is, when someone asks me a question regarding urban beekeeping, is it's a great thing if you do it correctly. It's a great thing if you're responsible with it. But you don't want to put other beekeepers in jeopardy if you don't think you have the time and resources to take care of your bees properly. So you need to really treat it as seriously as like, you know, when you are adopting a cat or a dog and you're, you are responsible for their care and their well-being. You need to look at it in that same, same light. It's, it's not just like planting a tree and then yeah, know, exactly. You, you get it through its first year and then you're kind of done. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's, um, well, my horticulture, my, <laughs> they would not appreciate that either. You need to prune mm-hmm. your tree, but it, it takes more care than just a set it and forget it kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I can, I kind of took your tree example. <laughs> I, I was thinking of it in a sort of different direction and even to an extent with a dog or a cat mm-hmm. where when you plant a tree, it's kind of confined to your yard. Yep. When you get a cat or a dog, for the most part, it's confined to your house. When you have a beehive, this is really a, you it's know, a community it, exactly. asset. Exactly. It, it, it has no real restrictions. The, yeah. the five kilometers around it are its home. Five so it's going kilometers. To, wow. Yeah, pretty astonishing yeah. foraging range for a honeybee. Nice. Yeah, so it's really, you know, your community owns it, not just you. I was just thinking about how long it takes me to run a 5K. <laughs> oh, gosh. It's embarrassing how long it's been since I've even tried. Interesting. So that is their that is what their range will be. So mm-hmm. um, yeah. your commitment your commitment is is to the community, not just to to sort of the individual benefit that you're going to get off. Exactly. Of like um, you wouldn't want to bring your dog with fleas to the dog park. Me as a beekeeper, I really don't want you to bring your bees that are carrying diseases to the flowers that healthy bees are going to be visiting. And when you go through that education, and um, you know, if you become part of, say, like the Minnesota Hobby Beekeepers mm-hmm. Association or stuff, they will have resources to teach you how to care for those and um, those situations and resources to um, sometimes even come to your home and help you deal with those situations Absolutely. if they arise. So so if you take this on as a hobby, as a, as a well, like you were saying, it's more than a hobby, but sort of as a practice, um, you need to avail yourself of those resources mm-hmm. to, to take proper care of your hive. Yeah, yeah. And, and you, you, you were right on point where local beekeeping organizations, they're super supportive. They're always trying to help the new beekeepers get off the ground. And there's just an incredible number of online resources that are also available. So if, if you want to put in the effort, the resources are out there. You just have to know where to look to find them. Wonderful. I, I so appreciate you talking with us about this. I think it is both an area that is interesting to people and some homeowners know to be paying attention to the bees in their yard. And, and I think some 
don't yet know that they can have an impact on sort of, you know, you see headlines about like, about the health of bees and as an individual aren't always sure, like, what can I do to impact this situation? Maybe the question that I have to sort of wrap it up is, like, what what is the piece of advice you would want to leave us with um, in terms of, you know, what what we should be doing or maybe it's something we should be learning about that you think is really fascinating? What would you leave us with? I think it's just it's just plain and simple. Plant more flowers. If there is one simple thing that every homeowner, every community goer can do, plant more flowers. It helps your honeybees. It helps your native bees, which are... I can't even begin to say how important the native bees are, and they, they're almost an afterthought to some people, which is really yeah. you know, an alarming issue within itself. Okay. But planting more flowers, if there's more food, everything that re- relates to bee health will start to improve. Thank you for listening to me talk about bees. It's my hope that you'll look at your backyard a little bit differently, that James and I helped you feel okay with your backyard looking a little less perfect because you know that in that imperfection, you're allowing room for nature to creep in. To learn more about the Bee Lab at the University of Minnesota, go to beelab.umn.edu. This season, we're ending our episodes with a link of the week. I want to share one of my favorite podcasts with you, the Dear Prudence podcast from Slate. Mallory Ortberg is Dear Prudence, and she offers advice. People write to her with questions about their love lives, about relationships with roommates, about stinky people at the gym. (laughs) She's insightful, and she gives really great advice. And there's a long-running theme of questions about whether or not you should steal someone's cat, which, spoiler alert, don't steal people's cats. But she gives this great advice, which I guess is good enough for an advice podcast. It would be good enough for, you know, your average advice podcast, but that is not why I listen to Dear Prudence. The real reason I listen to Dear Prudence is for Mallory's descriptions. If you're here and you're listening to Hyperlink, chances are you appreciate great writing. And Mallory is a writer, and she speaks in these beautiful, fully formed descriptions that you can only get from a true writer. She's hyperbolic, she's over the top, and I worship her for it. I mean, on a recent podcast, she announced that she would like to duel the advice seeker's husband. I love it. Mallory, I adore you. Let's go shopping for Star Trek memorabilia together. To listen to Mallory, go to Slate.com and click on Dear Prudence on the homepage. She's fantastic. You won't regret it. Thanks for listening to Hyperlink Radio. Join us next week when we're going behind the brand with Nintendo. Nintendo, you guys, I'm so excited. My favorite game for the original console was Adventures of Lolo, and the only other person I've ever heard of who knew that game too was our CEO, Matt Gartland. I love that game, and I'm not even sure that I ever cleared the final stage. I know I got to the final stage, but I can't remember if I cleared it. So next week's episode is going to push all of your nostalgia buttons. It's fantastic. Be sure to listen. Subscribe to Hyperlink Radio in your favorite podcast app or on iTunes or Stitcher or find us online at hyperlinkradio.io. That's hyperlinkradio.io. Thanks and stay connected. Thank you.